What is up, friends? Welcome back to Bitcoin and Markets, the show that keeps you ahead of the curve in Bitcoin. Now, I know this feed has been kind of stale lately, but I am not turning away from the show. I do produce tons of content out there uh, in Bitcoin. I produce a podcast weekly with Bitcoin Magazine's CK. You can find that by searching FedWatch Bitcoin in any of your podcast apps. I also do a weekly newsletter that is fairly popular called the Fundamentals Report. Um, and I do a member newsletter. So I'm I'm doing tons of content. Plus, I, I do write a blog. I've just wrote uh, a piece on the reverse repo. So when big things come up, I usually write about it. That's the best way for me to learn and, and to produce content for you guys. But I do plan to keep this podcast going. Um, and I appreciate the support from all the people out there that support the show. So if you want to see all the stuff I produce, uh, kind of the nexus of my content is that weekly newsletter. Every Friday it goes out called The Fundamentals Report. So you can go to bitcoinandmarkets.com and sign up for that free newsletter there. And you can also find all my other content on bitcoinandmarkets.com. Okay, for this show is one that has been in the works for a long time. If you go back a year or so in my feed to episode 210, I might, might have been 211, uh, I start talking about deflation, okay? And that was a big change for me because I was an inflationist, gold bug, Austrian for a de uh, decade and a half before I found Bitcoin. Um, then I was uh, inflationist <laughs> throughout my Bitcoin life here. And then just in the last couple of years, um, I've been looking at the evidence and have come to a deflationary thesis for what we see going on out there. Anyway, I talked about it back then, and I talk about it fairly regularly, both on my newsletters and on my blog and, you know, in my content out there. So uh, this one was a specific question from a longtime supporter of the show, Rob, and he asked me to do a breakdown of this deflationary hypothesis because he, he was really active in the Discord server, asking a lot of questions, and I wasn't able to... Uh, connect those dots in my head, uh, you know, by writing it out. So I'm going to do this uh, kind of uh, Q&A for Rob, but I think that it will serve everybody's purposes here. Now, when I came back and readdressed this, I had forgotten <laughs> the specific questions that Rob had because um, it was several months had gone by. Um, so I pinged him on a DM and he wrote out some general questions that he would like me to go through and answer. I think they're very good. Uh, and maybe at the end, if nothing, if not everything is covered, I can come back and readdress it again. So enough of the admin notes up front. Let's get into the content. just check my levels. Everything's looking good. All right. So his first question here um, is number one, Jeff Booth talks about how we should, we should have massive deflation due to technology and productivity advances. Yet we don't. Why not? Okay. There's a lot mixed into that question. It's a very comprehensive question is what I'm trying to say. And we can answer a lot of these caveats and answer a lot of these loose strings by answering this question. So 
first off, when you're at, when you're talking about deflation versus inflation, we have to have a set definition. And this sounds might sound to some people like being semantics. Like I'm, I'm just concerned with semantics, but it's not because um, a lot of the conclusions about price increases or hyperinflation or the death of the dollar, they all stem from the monetary definition of inflation. Now, when Jeff Booth comes in and he talks about deflation due to technology and productivity advances, he's not talking about the same thing. He's talking about price declines due to increased efficiency. Um, so that is not technically deflation in my book. It would just be price declines, um, increased living standards, maybe you could say. So that would be my first point is I disagree with just labeling of this as deflation. Um, now, also in this question, I, I kind of sense that the between the lines <laughs> here is a, a question of is inflation, monetary inflation outweighing technological deflation? So is the reason why we're not seeing prices going up, consumer prices going up? because we have deflation in technology. So I just want to point out that that is com that's mixing concepts. We need to keep these concepts straight. I mean, technological deflation would be very good thing, wouldn't it? I mean, just constantly increasing our living standards. Um, now, one thing I, I've interviewed Jeff Booth, great guy. He is probably the other only other deflationist in Bitcoin, and people seem to like his deflationist uh take more than mine but uh yeah he's probably the only other one i'm i'm the only monetary deflationist in bitcoin that i know of uh, but anyway his idea is kind of like this innovation is an independent variable that humans will always innovate and that this constant innovation will be driving price decreases and i don't buy that Okay, I've been a, a student of history for a long time, and you can look at periods, uh, I mean, look at any time before the Industrial Revolution, and you had pretty much a straight line of the same level of innovation. I mean, people weren't innovating between the year 1000 and the year 1100. Okay, at least they weren't innovating at the scale that we're innovating today. And so there are periods of faster and slower innovation and what can describe that i mean another period that just jumps out at me as i'm talking here is during the roman empire you know they had massively good engineering some things that just boggle the mind today um, the ability to put together things quickly move heavy objects that we even have trouble doing today we, we think of these ancient people as technologically behind where we are, but really minus a, a few innovations along the way, um, you know, they, they were extremely capable, but then you had the dark ages and innovation really was stagnant for many, many years. Um, the gum, gunpowder coming in that stimulated it, um, a bunch of other things stimulated, it, which is beyond the scope here to go into, but you know, in, innovation is not a steady state. It is not something that is an independent variable in and of itself. Um, so what I think is that uh, 
innovation, especially the one-to-many types of innovation. So if you look at Peter Thiel's work, he um, has that book, Zero to One, where the biggest inventions that come from nothing to something, like electricity, um, the radio, um, internal combustion, I mean, there's uh, the internet, there's a lot of these zero to ones, right, that create a whole new world after they are invented. So they are different than the one to many, which would be people uh, fine tuning, you know, coming out with a new light bulb versus coming out with electricity in general, and then wiring the houses and, and doing all this other stuff. So the one to many are just slight improvements over the major invention that was a zero to one. Now, the one to many, I believe, is a dependent variable. I mean, first off, we need to cover <laughs> cost savings of innovation. So if, if you're saving from innovation, it doesn't directly go into consumer prices, what you would charge your customer. Um, it could go into hiring more people, increasing wages, expanding the business, um, you know, doing something, uh, you know, buying a higher quality of another input. Right. So maybe you're using aluminum and you want to go to steel. And so with you, can, if you can save money here, then you can use the better parts on another thing. And so then the prices won't necessarily change. It would be a different quality item um, and CPI would adjust. But, you know, that that's we'll get into that a little bit later. So, no, it's not a one to one ratio either between innovation and cost to the people and also this this does tie into ip which i'm not a big fan of ip because uh, it creates an uncompetitive landscape right and so uh, there could be just somebody getting enriched profits going up that take the um, influence off of consumer prices okay but getting where was i on this um so as a dependent versus an ind independent variable um i think that Rising prices as a consequence of inflation, because inflation is an increase in the money supply, rising prices will incentivize people to find more efficient ways to do things to save money, right? And so I believe that a lot of the one-to-many innovations are driven off of a necessity more than they're driven off of just a steady state in human nature to innovate, all right? Um, and that can, if, if you think of it that way, that innovation is actually a dependent variable on inflation uh, to a certain degree, then you can see why prices wouldn't move. Uh, so that was a long answer to that question. Hope that made sense. Okay, number two. Is it possible to have both inflation and deflation in different types of goods and commodities is that what is happening okay again this is a word problem and that has to do with inflation and deflation i define inflation as an increase in the money supply uh, and so it doesn't make sense to say that you could have an increase in the money supply uh, for different types of goods you could say that the capital structure of an economy is shifted towards different types of industries or different types of goods, different types of culture, you know, different types of jobs, um, things like that. 
so there would be different effects from uh, fiscal policy, from monetary policy. So you could say that there would be different effects. So, for example, uh, the same pro the same government program in 1950 and 2021 are going to have different consequences because the economy is different. The labor market is different. The global globalization is different. And so there, there are going to be many different consequences in that regard. So in, in 1950, where a certain policy um, might have stimulated price increases in gasoline, uh, today it would stimulate uh, price decreases in gasoline and maybe increases somewhere else. So that is an important point to bring up. But no, I don't think you can have inflation and deflation at the same time, uh, at least on net, right? Which we'll get into why on net is important. But, um, and that's also for the same currency. So if you do have competing currencies, right? Uh, you have the euro and the real, those currencies can be inflating or deflating differently, and they will have a different capital structure within inside their economy that affects different commodity prices locally and regionally and globally. So uh, it's it's a very complicated system that we can't just look at prices. See, that's why my big thing is <coughs> you can't look at you can't look at single prices um, of certain industries in certain countries and then say there's inflation or deflation. It's very, very hard to do that. Um, so anyway, um, what else can I say about this? This brings up a very important caveat, though, which I haven't really talked about, uh, I don't think, many other places, but uh, this is an important concept as well. So there is money printing going on. It's not the Fed, and it's not the government. Is not They're not printing money. Who is printing money are the banks, right? The banks print money when they make loans. That is what our system is made up to be it's a bank centered system and the central bank is not central and qe is not money printing so uh, there but there is money printing out there and there's also money destruction so money printing happens when banks make loans and money destruction is when people pay off loans or default that's a very important thing so there's money coming in there's money being created and there's money being destroyed all the time it it definitely reminds me of Ethereum in a way with this ultrasound money thing that my last episode was on. Um, you know, they have issuance for their proof of stake, and then they have burning of fees. So they think the net total is going to be negative and, you know, deflationary. Um, where that's that's kind of my argument here is that the net total right now is not very inflationary if it's inflationary at all it is inflationary at one to two percent just barely uh, able to service new debt because the new debt is being issued at i don't know say one to three percent um you know the interest rate and so you need to have money creation at roughly one to three percent to keep it stable because they need to be able to service that debt next year or along the way to next year that's a very important point but yeah, so you have inflation happening, or not inflation, you have money printing happening with loans, you have money destruction happening with debt service, and also with defaults, um, and you also have to consider the rate of change. 
So I would say there is a net, a minor net inflation right now, but it does not offset the massive deflation that we had in 2020. Okay, the the inflation that we had between or since two, uh, 2009, yeah, since 2009 and 2020 was offset by both 2008 and also 2020. So if you spent 10 years with 1% inflation and then you have one year of 10% deflation, where do you end up? Well, overall, it's probably a deflationary environment. You know, these are deflationary shocks. So that's what I have to say about that one. Okay, number three. With the Fed expanding supply of reserves dramatically, why don't we see consumer inflation? Where do we look to measure it? So I kind of answered that one by saying that uh, QE is not money printing. And Rob knows his audience here because he said supply of reserves instead of money supply. So yes, what the, the Fed does is it doesn't print money. It creates a new asset called a reserve. And then it swaps that asset for other assets out there, usually U.S. Treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, or whatever. That's what QE is. So it is not money printing. And if you think of it that way, it makes sense why we don't see consumer inflation. We actually see a, a making fragile of the system. The system is made more fragile by the Fed action here. Um, and the reason for that is that, I mean, we had to define money. So this was one of my things that I, I really racked my brain for for months trying to think of. Um, well, because here was the problem. It, it was since 2008, we had all this QE and this money printing. And then we were in 2018, 19, it looked like we were slowing down. The yield curve had inverted. You know, then we had the repo rumble and it looked like we're going to have a deflationary shock again. And we never had inflation, at least in my anecdotal experience and according to the numbers you know we didn't have inflation but now we're faced with this deflationary shock again and so i was like am i not seeing this right so i went back and if there's inflation there will be broad-based price increases we didn't see that so did we have money printing so i went back to my premise and that's what i checked and i don't think people are doing that what instead what people do is they dive in and try to find inflation. They try to confirm their bias and they see inflation everywhere. They see it in housing prices and stock prices and bond prices. They see it in food prices and gasoline prices, even though you can run the numbers and these things aren't going up, at least food and gas, but real estate is going up, but not the affordability of real estate. Monthly payments are staying the same. It's just that the interest rate is going down. So house prices go up. You know, if you run the numbers and look at the affordability of houses, it's pretty steady. Anyway, um, what I came to was that money is not dollars. Okay, even though we are the dollar is supposed to be the world reserve currency, it's not. Okay, what is a world reserve currency is euro dollars, and euro dollars are dollars held around the world within a global financial system. Okay, this global financial system has characteristics all of its own. And what money has skewed into, has morphed into over the decades, is, I believe, a hybrid between collateral 
and dollars. Because dollars without collateral are less liquid, right? So how do you increase the liquidity? Well, you add collateral to those dollars, right? And what that means is like in a loan, uh, like for example, a repo overnight loan, you don't just go to your buddy banker and say, I need a billion dollars overnight. I'll repay you tomorrow. They say, well, give me a billion dollars worth of treasury notes. I'll hold those. And if you don't pay me, then I will be able to sell those and get my money back. Right. But that implies an equal amount of liquidity. So there's an equal amount of liquidity for the dollars going one way and the treasury's collateral going the other way. And if you don't have the collateral, you can't make the money move. The, the dollars become illiquid. Um, and that's the dollar shortage. That's the whole idea behind the dollar shortage. So my idea is that the money today in the global financial system is actually a hybrid between dollars and collateral. Now, if there's a collateral shortage, which is brought on by the Fed buying collateral or not buying collateral, but swapping collateral for reserves, right? Which is what QE is that uh, handicaps the market. It makes the market less liquid. So even if the market uh, recovers completely, so the 20, the 2008 shock, the global financial crisis, let's say within five years, the economy has healed 100%, but it's healed with 4 trillion less of collateral in the system. So it's handicapped by $4 trillion. It will never be able to grow with that much less money. That is the whole idea be behind why QE is not money printing and it actually it handicaps the market. All right, guys, that is going to be the end of part one. I will come back and finish the Q&A in the next part. So make sure you subscribe. That should be coming out in a few days as soon as I get to editing that second half. In that second half, we talk about quite a bit about Bitcoin. Uh, we talk about CPI. We talk about asset price inflation, gold or Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation. So you'll want to make sure to subscribe and check out that second half that will be coming out here in the next few days. That is it for this one, guys. Thank you for joining me. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. This is a listener-funded podcast. To find out more, go to bitcoinandmarkets.com. Uh, that is where you also find the show notes for this episode. And while you're there, subscribe to the free weekly newsletter. Uh, that is the best free weekly newsletter in Bitcoin called the Fundamentals Report. And check out the Discord. We're building a nice community over there with lots of simultaneous topics and rooms going at the same time. So BitcoinandMarkets.com and you'll find all of that information. Thanks for listening. See you next time.